Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Confabulation hosted by our sister's house. We are recording here in the north end of Tacoma. And today we have on Mario Broussard. He is a father advocate and he holds an undergraduate degree in psychology from Southern Adventist University, as well as a master's degree in clinical social work from Howard University. I'm gonna go over and hand it to Mario so that he could further introduce himself so you guys can get to know him. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's awesome to be here and uh, awesome to be able to form this new partnership and collaboration with our sister's house. Um, once again, my name is Mario Broussard and uh, man, you kind of, there's not a whole bunch to me, but at the same time, you know, I'm passionate about life. I'm passionate about people. Um, and I love uh, to help where I can. Like was as was mentioned, I'm a husband. I'm a father to uh, a young a young child. His name is Declan. He's four years old. Uh, he keeps me going. And uh, when I'm when I'm not doing uh, some form of advocacy or engaging in my my field in mental health uh, through social work, uh, I'm trying to catch some Call of Duty. I'm trying to play some 2K. <laughs> I'm trying to chill. So uh, I'm pretty laid back, pretty individual, uh, but I, I get really fired up for people. I get really fired up for uh, issues of injustice. Uh, and so you kind of see me take a change there. But when it's when when I'm not engaging in my passions, I'm chilling. So, yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, so what made you want to get into psychology and into people? Was there a certain like Thing that happened in your childhood or your adulthood or when you went to college that kind of like navigated you to that path? Yeah, um, so I, I think honestly, it was the, if I'm honest, when I think back about it, it was the influence of my mother and my grandmother. Um, they were, you know, we, we grew up in church culture and um, I just watched my grandmother. I mean, I would go over to her house and stay for a weekend. And in the course of that, we would end up over an elderly church member's home, uh, cleaning her home from top to bottom. Um, you know, or, or, or I always witnessed her making some food for someone. Uh, my mother just really, she was an educator, but she really had a nurse's heart. She wanted to, she wanted to be a nurse. Uh, that didn't get to come to fruition in her life, but I just this this I guess this attitude and posture of service, and so it really rubbed off on me. I think I was a very sensitive child. Uh, I never had to be strongly reprimanded. All you had to do was tell me uh, we need to talk, and I I didn't want to have that. Like I would rather some type of uh, corporal punishment. <laughs> uh, then, then for my parents to sit me down and tell me that we needed to talk and maybe I was disappointed, they, maybe they were disappointed in me. And so there's just, uh, I, I guess in some ways I'm a softy and that led me to want to help individuals in any way that I could. And long story short, when, you know, when I was in school, I found that individuals were just always coming to me for advice uh, about their life or as I've grown up and, you know, and, and now into adulthood, even now I'll be in a store and someone will stop me and ask my opinion about something a lot deeper than groceries or, you know, which produce to buy. Uh, and so I said to myself, you know, if some, if people are going to keep asking me questions, 
<laughs> I might as well turn this into a career. And of course, uh, counseling, um, psychology, and, and now through the field of social work and clinical counseling and therapy is, is, is how I'm navigating that. And so it's awesome to, to be able to make a living from it, but also to make an impact in the, pro impact in the process. Yeah. I really like that. I I grew up watching my mom give service to a lot of people too. I feel like that tends to be a lot of like the black woman's story is that they're always helping mm -hmm. someone else out. And then we typically take that on. I see that a lot yeah. in the black community. Yeah. Um, so I know you're gonna be working with us, especially by um, helping domestic violence clients with by giving them a lot of therapy and help that is a need that we have seen frequently, especially now during COVID. Um, what ways would you tell us or what ways would you train us to help our victims now, especially through COVID when they are kind of stuck in their element or stuck in a place where they like refuse to move? Like what words can we help them to inspire them to like leave their abuser or what can we do better as advocates to like be better at listening to their stories instead of just like kind of pushing them through the system in a sense how can we help better heal them too yeah you, you know i think that um covid and this this pandemic has simplified um communication it, it, it's complicated communication in, in so many ways but in other ways it's simplified and really uh, brought brought the bare necessities the, the foundations of communication to the forefront um, it has slowed us down it has separated us and it now causes us to be uh greater listeners um one of the core principles of social work is to meet the person where they're at and like you said it's so easy for us to see an individual in distress uh an individual in crisis and and want to usher them out of there. Um, but to meet them where they're at, and I believe that you guys probably do a lot of this at our sister's house, to meet them where they're at and to not go ahead of them, but also to just provide a sense of community to them as they're trying to work through um, whether they wanna leave. And that's, that, that's, that's tough because like, you know, like I said, you see them in crisis and you're like, let's get you out of here as soon as possible. Uh, but helping them understand at what point they are at um, and also the resources they have available. But uh, my role, I believe is going to, is gonna truly be, hey, I'm the listening ear uh, I certainly have suggestions, but before I give my suggestions, where are you at? And really helping uh, individuals take inventory of their current position and their current mindset, because you can't, you can't go ahead of an individual. Um, our goal is to go alongside of them. And so that's what I'm hoping to be able to do um, and, and provide a, a place of safety for them and, and active listening. Yeah. Can you talk about like kind of um, the type of, cause you know, therapy, I feel like it's a broad, there's like a broad range of therapy. Is there like a specific um, demographic or people going through certain issues that you primarily work with? Sure. Um, I have encountered uh, a, a, a 
a large community of different needs. Uh, but the two that I consistently uh, hone in on and where I see my strengths are, uh, are anxiety and depression. And those are two of the major um, issues that we are struggling with as a society today. And I kind of just try to hone in on uh, the pulse of society and really sharpen my, my skills in those areas of where people are struggling. And my case, uh, my, client, um, my client load has really ranged as well from individuals as young as eight to individuals as old as 63. And, it, you know, and so um, it, it is broad, it is wide, but I think that it has given me and equipped me with um, uh, enough experiences to be able to, to have that empathy um, and to be able to, to share in individual struggles uh, wherever they are in the developmental uh, in the developmental scale of life. And so uh, as we go forward, I, I think you know, I think some of those tools will help me with domestic violence uh, survivors is what I'm going to call them. Um, and, and not not just victims, but survivors. And so uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited. Yeah. And I think we're pretty excited too. just talking to you for briefly for the last 10 minutes, you know, just hearing how you interact with clients, I think is really important. And, you know, your experience with eight-year-olds to six through three-year-olds, you know, that shows that, you know, you have a lot of big range of skills of being able to talk to an eight-year-old and meet their needs and then being able to talk to someone who's 60 and being able to meet them where they're at too. That's really awesome to hear. Yeah. Thank you. So I know that the grant you're going to be working under is going to be specifically tailored to Black women or Black individuals who are experiencing domestic violence. And there's a huge stigma in the Black community about seeking therapy or seeking mm -hmm. help, especially for Black women, especially um, since we're known to be the strong Black women. And a lot of the times I've been reading up on Twitter because I've seen lots of things that like trigger me as a black um, woman and people are like well that's actually anxiety like the things that you think you have to do are the things that you like you think you're failing at that's actually anxiety and I was wondering how can we get more talk around therapy in the uh, black community how can we make it seem more like much more of a need in the black community and how do we get more black women to seek therapy and black men to seek therapy like how can we you know, adapt this into our community. So it's not a stigma anymore. Yeah, man, one thing I love about um, uh, the black community is that, you know, we are, we are trendsetters. Um, if you look at the number one genre of music now, uh, hip hop has taken over uh, and eclipsed every genre of music. Uh, we, the culture that we provide, the flavor that we provide to this country and really to the world is unparalleled and unmatched. And, and it doesn't make us better than anyone else, uh, uh, but it just goes to show the influence that we have. And so number one, I'd like to say, I think we need to see more uh, black individuals pursuing mental health fields uh, specifically as therapists. I mean, the statistic is pretty staggering um, when it comes to the number of black mental health professionals as licensed therapist, uh, it, it's only 4% in the, in, in the nation. So only 4% of, of mental health therapists are, are black 
or African-American or, or of African descent. And so um, we need to see more of us, right? Because the research shows in education that children learn better when they see, uh, black children learn better when they see black teachers. Um, and so to be a part of that 4% is awesome, uh, but it's also a little daunting. It's also uh, a little sad because I know that if we see more individuals like us, we will be more inclined to seek treatment. Um, th the other thing is that access to treatment is, is tough. Um, if you're, you know, not everybody has $150 to give to somebody for a session, um, you, you know, and so, and then not everyone has access to healthcare or even the knowledge of how to obtain it. And so we need to continue um, to get our voices out there. We need the voices of those celebrities, uh, those people that we look up to, as well as everyday people um, like myself, just trying to echo that on our IG pages, on our social media. We, we need to just talk about it because the more we talk about it, the more we normalize it. And the more we normalize it, um, the greater the chances are that individuals will seek the help that they need. Uh, but you're right, we really need it in our community. I'm kind of really excited about this generation, especially like my Twitter page and my Instagram page. I've been filling it with like people who are like, these are things I've identified about myself and troubles and I've been going to therapy. So I've been really following a lot of like people who are in therapy and they are black and they're like this is what my therapist tells me and if you can't seek therapy these are like resources so kind of like engaging a lot with i'm gonna say the healthier side of black twitter um mm -hmm. is really really good um they do give a lot of helpful advice on how to seek a therapist questions you should ask your therapist um so what are questions that you would tell a black individual to ask their therapist before they kind of commit to that therapist? Yeah, you know, um, one of them that I would ask, you know, straight out is, you know, are you familiar with the plight of black people in America? You know, um, regardless of if the therapist is black or not, or, you know, if they're white or not, you know, uh, it's 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 a pretty direct question. It sounds pretty formal. It, it, you know, it, it may be a little awkward, but um, you know, e even questions about um, institutionalism of uh, and racism and things like that. You know, are you familiar with these terms? Because it is our reality as a, as people of color uh, that there are institutions set up that you know that cause us to that don't allow us to succeed and that contribute to our mental illness um and and so those that's one major question um that i would have asked and and you know if, if i was seeking a therapist uh because that pushes the the world of therapy uh to be up on uh, one of the one of the core values in any therapeutic model is cultural competence mm -hmm. and so it's it, you're not harming your therapist you're not creating a, a distance between you and your therapist if they're a true professional they can handle whatever question you ask them <clears throat> and if they cannot then they are instructed to refer you to someone who can 
And so uh, just know that you have power um, when you go into those situations seeking a therapist um, and you have rights to ask things um, so that you are comfortable and so that you are getting the help that you need. I like that a lot. I think it's important for someone to be able to ask those questions and feel like they can and not just, you know, expect, oh, this is my therapist. I just have to, you know, sit through this and get this help because I need it, yeah. but actually, you know, get the help that you deserve, get the help that's, you know, culturally um, specific to you and that, you know, someone that you can really relate to. And, you know, I think building that relationship is really important. Um, but I kind of want to ask you, like, on the flip side, what do you tell somebody who's hesitant about getting therapy who might say, um, you know, they've experienced a lot of trauma and they know that, um, but, you know, expressing it is really hard for them and they feel like, you know, just keeping all those feelings inside um, is going to be better for them. What would you, you know, tell a person that comes to you that might ask that? Oh, man, there's a couple things. Um... Number one, uh, one of the stigmas of mental health um, are that it's not as important as physical health. Um, and the research would say otherwise. The research out there that talks about stress on the body uh, and how, how distress or, or negative stress impacts your entire physiology uh, from your brain to your organs uh, and, and, and your perceptions and thoughts. And so, um, number one, you cannot afford to neglect your mental health because it spills right over into your physical health. And that's one thing that we don't really realize because when we go to the doctor, we can see, uh, or we can feel if we have an ache, a pain, or if there's an abrasion, uh, we can go to the doctor and, and we know that that doctor can give us something, that doctor can see our pain, they can see our issue. Uh, but when it's internal, uh, we neglect it because it's not seen. It's almost like out of sight, out of mind until you're triggered uh, and, or until you find yourself in a place of high anxiety or, or depression uh, and you're contemplating whether or not you want to live anymore. Uh, I think that uh, suicidal ideation is a great indicator of, of of how traumatic or how impressive the, the our mental health is on uh, the rest of our well-being, and so um, number one, you almost can't afford not to address it uh, for for the sake of your life. But then the second part is, uh, we as a society are connected. We as a world are connected, and so um, so to speak, you know the 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 metaphor. You know, if 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 I'm cut, I bleed on you. You know, in other words, there's the visual there of this connectedness that um, my mental wellness or my mental illness uh, is directly related to, to another person's quality of life. Uh, and so if you have children, if you have a spouse, if you have a significant other uh, and you've experienced enormous amounts of trauma, uh, holding it in is actually not possible. Um, it's not possible for, for long periods of time. Everything that we experience needs to get out. And I just can't stress that enough because if it doesn't get out, if we don't, if we don't help it get out, it's going to ooze out. It's going to leak out and it's going to leak out and impress on other individuals in a negative way and thus repeating cycles of mental illness and mental stigma. 
uh, mental health stigma uh, that we've seen trickle down in generations before us. And, uh, and even now as this generation, we're holding the bag. And so we really can't afford to be negligent when it comes to our mental health. I like the term a lot of people are using right now or like is breaking generational curses. And I see yeah. that especially nowadays, a lot of people are doing a lot to make sure that they're not repeating the same cycles that their families or their mom and dad went through and experienced. And how would we as individuals identify whether or not we need therapy? Like what indicator should give off whether or not I should now start seeking a therapist before we get to like suicide? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things I always uh, go back to is in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual for, for, um, di for diagnosing individuals in, in, in the psychology world. Um, it, it, will, it will give the indicator that um, something is okay unless it impacts the quality of life. Like um, fear is okay or anxiety is okay unless it's impacting your quality of life. There is um, programmed in each human being this concept and you've maybe heard it in Psych 101 class, um, fight or flight. You know, so there, there is something healthy about being afraid. There is something healthy about having certain, um, uh, a certain level of anxiety about a circumstance. Uh, because in the animal world, it's what helps keep animals alive. And we are mammals uh, by categorization. And so there's something to it. But then when it begins to negatively impact your quality of life, including your relationships, your sleep, um, you know, your ability to function at work. If you find yourself um, constantly uh, breaking down and crying, it, you're not crazy. It, it's just that it's what's inside that you've been trying to hold in, trying to come out. Uh, when, I'll, give you, I'll give you a physiological um, example. Whenever we have a fever, a fever is uh, when our temperature rises, but the purpose of, for most fevers uh, is because there is infection in the body. So our body informs us that there's infection by letting us know, that by causing our temperature to rise and in, or infection or poison. I don't know if you've ever had a fever, but when the fever gets to a certain point, I'm, I'm sure you've had a fever, but this scenario, when the fever gets to a certain point, it causes you to um, throw up, you know? And it's like, what is that about? Well, maybe there's a toxin, maybe there's a poison in your body and your body's trying to indicate this can't stay in here any longer. And so our mental health signs where, where we're getting to the place where we can't take it anymore, where we need to get it out are the excessive crying, the, the the excessive anxiety, the, the deep depression, those are some of your, your mind and your body's uh, way of saying, this needs to come out. And so um, pay attention to how you're feeling. Um, you know, if you just lost someone, grieving, crying, perfectly fine. Uh, but, but when you find that it's impairing your quality of life, 
uh, overall for an extended period of time, then maybe you've got to seek, you know, some help because you've got to get it out, you know, and those are just some examples. I got a question for you. Um, sure. How would you say your mental health is now from when you were in college to now how you're now outside of college when you're an adult? Like, do you say it's better now? Do you say you struggle with it more? Like, how would you say, like, from college to now, how would you, how would you say it is? Yeah, man. Um, those, <laughs> listen, 20 to 26-ish mm -hmm. is a tough period of time. Um, in fact, uh, statistically, that 20 to 25 range, uh, there are severe mental illnesses that individuals are more uh, prone to, such as schizophrenia um, and, and, and some of those other quote unquote psychotic diagnoses uh, because of how tough that 20 to 25, 26 range is. Uh, because there's so many expectations that you place on yourself, that others place on you, you're watching individuals succeed in ways that you've only dreamed. Maybe you had a setback. Uh, maybe you made some mistakes. And so I would say that my mental health uh, is significantly better now that I'm on the other side of 20, um, uh, of my 20s, unfortunately, or fortunately, it's good to be alive. Uh, but uh, it's significantly better because I had a, I had a really tough time and in that time, finding, watch this, finding um, positive community is imperative to coming out of your 20s um, healthy and whole. Uh, because, you, you know, we have tons of people around us if we're at parties, if we're at get-togethers, whatever the case is, uh, but not everyone around us has... Um, are, are equipped to be able to help us navigate through life. And that's why you got to watch, especially in your 20s, really throughout life, uh, who you're getting advice from, you know, um, where you're going, what you're doing, what you're putting in your body, because that all impacts your mental health. So, yeah, that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. My 20s were pretty tough, uh, as I imagine a lot of people's are. Thank you. Yeah. Circling back to domestic violence, I kind of mm -hmm. wanted to talk about what the indicators of a healthy relationship would look like and the indicators of a bad relationship would look like or an unhealthy relationship would look like. And yeah. Yeah. So um, so in psychology, there, there are these two terms. Um, one of them is independence and one is in interdependence. And um, I think that a healthy relationship is a relationship that is interdependent. Um, you know, there's a huge movement in hip hop, there's a huge movement in culture, right? You know, has been for a while now. You know, I got my own money, I'm doing this, I, I've got my own bag, you know, whatever the case is. Um, it's, this, it's this emphasis of, and it's really, it really cancels out the culture as well because on one part of our culture, it's like there are love songs about who I lost, who I want to be with. <laughs> but then there are other songs that tell us, you know, get your own. Mm -hmm. I got a girl who's got her own bag. Well, yeah, that's great. That's great, right? But a healthy relationship is one that is not just, it's not dependent. It's not just independent. It's 
interdependent, which means I have my own stuff. I have my own ambition. Um, I have my own goals, but I recognize that being with you adds quality to my life and it enhances my ability to achieve what I'm trying to go for. And so when you're in relationships, you're looking for individuals who build you and not break you. Um, You're looking for individuals who encourage interdependence and discourage dependence. See, dependent individuals are individuals uh, who rely on someone else for their happiness for their wholeness, for their well-being, um, and, and thus in the process, lose their own identity if they ever had it in the first place. And so our relationship should be encouraging us to, to, to understand who we are. They should challenge us to look at the weak areas in our lives, um, the, the areas of growth, and not uh, it, it should be a building experience and, and not a breaking experience, uh, if that makes sense. I, I try to answer it in a concise way to, for time. No, that totally makes sense to me. And I feel like, especially um, since you're talking about our 20s and all of us are currently in our 20s and yeah. everyone doesn't know exactly what to look for in a partner because they look up to like, you know, the hip-hop stars or the rappers and stuff like that and they're like well that's what she got so that's what I have to have too and they yeah. don't understand that she has it because she worked that hard to obtain it like you don't just deserve it just because you look as good as her or whatever right yeah they I think that it's teaching a lot of dependence on a man um or on a woman whereas I mm-hmm. really like that interpretation of interdependence um yeah that's like a, a big thing that comes up with domestic violence, you know, survivors is they're completely, you know, dependent on their abuser. And that's, you know, the reason that they, you know, stay with their abuser. And it's really, you know, hard for them to leave that relationship is, you know, because, you know, they don't have that sense of independence. And that's something that we really try to, you know, do here is empower them to regain that sense of independence where they can, you know, go on with their lives and, you know, live their live the life that they want to live not what their you know abuser you know is controlling them to do um so when someone what did you tell someone you know that's getting therapy from you um you know that they're maybe in like denial about their abuse have you ever experienced someone um that you know doesn't recognize that they're dependent on someone and what kind of advice would you give to them yeah, uh, yeah, you see it. I've seen it uh, before, and it's really, um, it's really just asking them questions, um, asking them questions, and and see that's when individuals find themselves in uh, abusive situations, when they find themselves in uh, in a lot of negative situations in life. I believe that it's because, in part because they have not been surrounded by individuals who challenge their thinking, right? And so what my goal is when I'm speaking with someone who you know, may need to leave an abusive situation um, is to really ask the types of questions that cause them to have to reflect because my goal is for them to come to the conclusion 
that they need to leave for them to come to the conclusion that they're um, placing themselves in harm, not just the not just the obvious harm of someone beating them or locking them somewhere or whatever the case is, but really those psychological the psychological damage that took place that takes place. Um, and so some of the questions I asked them is to, I, I asked them what it is that they want out of life. Because um, I use the analogy a lot of times in relationships, we're all kind of on this figurative highway and we're all coming in on some end ramp and we're all exiting on some exit ramp. The individual that's supposed to be with you or, or, or that is healthy in terms of partnership or companionship is going to not care so much where you came from, what ramp you entered into on, and is not overly concerned about where you're exiting, but they're concerned about taking this part of the journey in life together on the highway. Um, and, and I know that sounds so like philosophical and everything, but it really paints the imagery of who's, who's, who's driving with you, who's with you, and where are you going? And sometimes individuals can realize what they need based off of being able to understand what it is that they're trying to achieve. And so helping them, asking them, what, did it, what, what is it that you're trying to accomplish at this stage? And then is the person that you're with helping you accomplish this? And, and obviously it gets a little more complicated than that, but I mean, that's kind of the gist of the type of framing and, and interaction that I'm going to have with individuals, because I'm, my hope is that they come to the conclusion on their own, because that's when empowerment happens. Someone can come alongside of you and help you, uh, but you've got to come to the conclusion on your own. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. That self-reflection, I think, is even more powerful than you just telling someone someone um, what to do. And you know, we see people always asking us. Um, I have a friend who's being abused and they won't re leave this relationship and they just keep telling them you just have to leave you have to leave when it's like really not that simple and you know the person themselves has to you know come to that realization um, I think it's a, yeah. an important thing for you know people in abusive relationships and friends of people that are in abusive relationships to recognize yeah let me say let me say this before we move um, and, I, and maybe someone who's listening to this is in the midst of an abusive relationship. Maybe you're in circumstances that you, you know, don't care for in life in general. One thing that I really uh, believe in is I have a zero shame policy. Uh, obviously, a therapist should not be shaming an individual, uh, but just in my life, I operate in in my circle. I really try to build the atmosphere of zero shame. Um, and, and so, one way that I kind of um, decry shame and try to reverse shame is to help individuals understand, look, it's been six months, a year, five years, 15 or 20 years, however long it's been that you've been in this relationship that is unhealthy. Um, it, 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 it was a process to get you into this unhealthy relationship. It will be a process to get you out of it. And so you know that the end goal is that you need to leave. Uh, but before we get to the day where you where you pack your bags and sneak out and head to wherever the resource is that you're, ha you know, a family member's house, it it took a level 
uh, a, it took time for you to get into that dysfunction. It's going to take time for you to get out of it. So be diligent, um, be consistent, but be gracious to yourself uh, because it takes time to undo whatever it is that we've done, uh, whether it be positive or negative. It happens in the gym, you know, it, it happens uh, when we're lifting weights or whatever. It takes time for the fat to come back and the muscle to leave. And it takes time for the muscle to come on and the fat to leave. And so we don't give psychological issues the same type of credence that we do physical issues. Once again, it takes time to undo it. And so be gracious to yourself. There's no place for shame. What are some red flags that you would tell individuals to look out for um, before committing to a relationship? Mm. Um, red flags. So um, one of them, um, and we see this, this is really at the crux of, of any unhealthy relationship, is to watch out for that, for, for, and be able to identify those controlling mechanisms that that individual has from the beginning. Like it's, it's one thing if the, if the guy wants to be a gentleman and he wants to pay for, you know, for your date. It's another thing if he simply will not allow you to pay for it. I mean, that, that's usually where it starts, right? It's like, it, there's, there's the gesture of, I got this. And then there's the gesture of, uh, you know, I'm gonna make a scene. I'm gonna cause you to be extremely uncomfortable. You know, I'm trying to get to those rudimentary times, those first dates, those first encounters. Um, the, the individual who won't allow you to go on your social media um, any longer, now that you guys are together. Um, and it all seems great at first because it's almost like, oh, they care about me so much and they just, they just want me to themselves. Yeah, but it, you know, that's, that's a little unhealthy, especially if they're shaming you in the process of it, right? Um, and so those are some of those, those fundamental red flags um, you, comparing you. Uh, to end of other individuals or, or previous um, boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever the case is. Um, th those issues of, of comparison are meant to, uh, to cut you down so that they can have control. Um, and whether or not they're intentionally doing it to say, ha ha, I want control over you one day or not, those are some of those red flags that you may need to get out of there. And if you find yourself um, feeling comfortable with these things, then I wanna encourage you to do a self inventory of why it is that you're able to so readily submit to a person's actions of control and domination. Um, and, 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 you know, once again, that's not easy and, and, and individuals don't usually get to hear something like this. But if you're in that right now, you know, ask yourself those questions, do the hard work, because it's harder to get out of an abusive relationship. Um, it's much harder to get out of an abusive relationship than it is for you to maybe have to confront some early signs, some red flags in yourself and in the other individual. Um, you know, earlier on and save yourself 
uh, all the way around. I think one of the signs I look out for, especially um, when I'm dating someone or on a first date, is how they talk about their ex. Like, I want to see, is it always their fault? Is it consistently, they were the victims, they're constantly blaming yeah. them, making them out to be the bad guy, and they don't take any type of accountability. That's one thing I really look out for. I'm like, oh, so tell me about your past relationships. How did they go? And if they're always the angel in the situation, I know <laughs> it's time for me to get, like, to get out of there. Because that's, yeah. that's never the case. Right. Narcissism is rampant uh these days and and it shows itself in so many ways you're right like that is an excellent indicator i agree with you uh because it it it, it paints the bigger picture of an individual's inability to do some self-reflection um and ability to grow and 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 really admit when they're wrong and that um yeah, that 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 could be a recipe for disaster. That was a great that's a great uh, suggestion. Um, I kind of want to talk about the black community and the domestic violence they're kind of receiving from systematic racism. I know that during the height of George Floyd, for me personally, um, it was hard for me to go on social media when you're constantly just like like yeah like we understand the whole entire notion of black lives matter and there are so many allies putting it out there constantly pushing it constantly pushing it but they didn't really realize the amount of like trauma and anxiety it was giving the black community like i understand that we needed to have these constant discussions but i think that like at the very height of it when it first started i was talking to lots of different friends and they talked about how they couldn't go on social media how they didn't want to talk about it anymore because it's something they experience on a daily basis whereas now a lot of people are getting privy to this information about like how a black man or a black woman goes like through America or throughout each and every single day I wanted to talk about because it's still going on now what ways can we practice self-care how can we constantly check in on ourselves especially when there is another black man or a black woman who has been killed by the hands of police or who has experienced systematic racism how can we check in with ourselves and keep our and we'll keep constantly healing from it in a sense yeah um it's so tough uh, because social media is such an integral part of our day-to-day -day life at this point. I mean, I, I get my news from social media. You know, it's 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 such an integral part. But uh, we do have to be intentional about having some balance. Um, I, I would say between all of the racial, the police brutality, um, the death of Kobe Bryant, like that whole span, and COVID and everything. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I took time. Um, like when I was feeling angry, when I was feeling frustrated or overwhelmed, I literally took time to sit on the couch, um, cry if I needed to. And, and uh, you know, I'm just being transparent. That's, that's what I, you know, like, especially, I didn't understand why I was so impacted by Kobe's death and then George Floyd's death. I didn't know these individuals and obviously those were for different reasons. You know, Kobe was a helicopter crash, but but like I had to I, I had to ask myself that question, like, why do you feel this way? And, and I, may, whether I come up with a legitimate answer or not, I, I really sat with it. I took two days after Kobe passed 
wasn't even a, a huge Kobe Bryant fan. Uh, I'm a basketball fan. I'm an NBA fan. Um, it, but there was something just so tragic about it. And, and even with, uh, you know, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, the whole nine, like I would sit with my, with my emotions and I would really honestly try to address them head on because otherwise they're going to come out in, um, displaced anger. I have a four-year-old son. I don't want to be, you know, um, acting out towards him. Um, and so I really had to take those moments and keep it real with myself about how I was feeling. I had to get off of social media for a while, you know, even if it was just for half a day um, and, and not look at anything else. And um, I had to choose to not engage in those conversations uh, with individuals because as the oppressed and, and as, as a black person in America, we find ourselves feeling like we have to educate everybody um on on what our plight is and and the perspective that they need to have and the truth about it is is it truly is not our job and duty to be a teacher 24 7 uh when we are experiencing the trauma so i had to i had to back away from certain comments and posts and certain dms that i received and just say hey here's a here's a website that you can go look at or I believe that there's enough information out there for you to check this out because it pains me. And we're not used to that level of uh, transparency, but that's how, that's, that, those are the lengths that I had to go to uh, in order to heal enough to be able to go, uh, to make it through, yeah. With like, that kind of made me think of, so like you're experiencing, you know, emotions and trauma um, and, you know, during your therapy, you're listening to people with a lot of, you know, trauma and you're hearing their story, you know, asking them questions, you're really involved, you know, in their life, um, you know, like as a therapist, how do you manage your own, you know, feelings like do therapists ever go to see another therapist or, you know, something like that, or how do you kind of, you know, after you're done, you know, the newest client, you know, disconnect, um, you know, from that so you can go about, you know, your own life. Yeah, um, there's a there's a number of ways that I I try to really um, uh, have uh, create those those healthy spaces to heal. Um, number one, exercise in whatever form it is uh, that you love. So like I love, I mean, COVID has really put a damper on it, but I love going to play ball. So I, you know, like there's something so therapeutic of uh, four hours of of pickup ball and then you know get home and 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 crash. It does so much uh, for me. Um, and so I, I have usually two times a week, I'm, I'm heading out um, and playing ball. But then the other one is writing. Um, so writing really helps me and not just journaling, but like maybe I'll, I, you know, I started a blog, you know, and I haven't posted much on it, but I've put out a few postings. Um, and, and that helps me get it out as well. Um, that has really helped. And um, another one is engaging in safe places to have those conversations. So I found myself on a lot of panel discussions about these issues and being able to hear other people's perspective and in a safe environment of us talking about it really helped me navigate through it and helped me understand what some of my next steps were in the midst of trying to navigate through the trauma. So, yeah. 
speaking of safe spaces, um, we actually are trying to create a safe space for Black youth to express their trauma and how they're dealing with all of the injustices that they constantly are seeing that are ongoing. Um, mm -hmm. How would what advice would you give to us to help create these safe spaces? Like, what do they look like? And you know, yeah, um, you know, it, there's there's nothing more impactful than gathering up a few. Uh, individuals that represent the community that you want to serve and, and, and create those spaces for and and asking them, you know, what is it that that, you, you know, what would that look like for you? Uh, what are some of your fears? What are some of uh, the issues that you have that are holding you back from talking about what it is that you're going through? And so kind of get a small focus group of those individuals uh together ones ones who you know feel like they're at a place to where they're ready to articulate that and speak on behalf of their peers um you can't really go wrong with that i think so many times we try to develop programs and yet we are not asking the individuals that we want to develop the program for what is it and how can i meet your needs uh and so um, that's where i start with um and it is also pretty, I think it's also really good for individuals to see individuals like themselves, as well as individuals who may not be of the same color or hue or cultural background, who are identified as allies in those spaces, seeing them empathize with them. Uh, I think that goes a long way. I like that answer a lot. So you would put um, other people, like if we were to create a safe space for black kids, you would put other like kids who are not black in that same safe space to hear, or would you more of them have them there to observe and not to speak? Like how would they yeah. Uh, number one, I do think I'm glad you asked for that clarification. Number one, I do think that um, when you're trying to establish that rapport, that maybe those individuals would remain out of there. Um, but then if you identify individuals who are who are who are making significant contributions as allies um, uh, within society, within their community, or within that very community that you're serving, eventually maybe those individuals can come in. Um, they can talk about you know their experience, not so much in a comparison to, uh, but in a form of empathy, and then also talk about how it has motivated them to help and to give back to the communities that are oppressed as well. So it's a, it, I think it would be a gradual process. You know, at first you got to establish that 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 rapport with those individuals, and and once again maybe go back to the drawing board and say, hey, you know, I got a couple individuals that I believe that are allies um that could really you know boost the morale of this or, or or give perspective how do you guys feel about them coming in you know the, you, you can't go wrong with asking the direct question yeah i remember when that happened to us or so we me and our other advocate jill um we went to this it was for domestic violence it was it was supposed to be like a safe space for you know black people to talk about 
um, the work that they're going, what they're going through. Um, mm -hmm. And they had invited, you know, our organization if we wanted to have advocates come. Um, but it wasn't made super clear that it was specifically only for um, Black individuals. Um, so I had showed up um, thinking oh, this is totally fine, whatever, you know, I introduced myself and they asked us to um, show what was you, how do you identify, you know, with your race? And I said, I identify as white, um, but, you know, I work for an organization that serves Black people. Um, and, you know, eventually, you know, they asked me to leave just because they felt like they, you know, they just wanted that, you know, safe space. And I understood, you know, that they wanted that space and, you know, they might be, you know, saying things that, you know, could offend me or, you know, that they didn't feel comfortable saying, you know, being, you know, having a white mm -hmm. person in the room, you know, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, it's kind of like I'm working with, you know, this community, I'm trying to serve this community and just kind of learn. Um, so I was a bit confused, you know, why I didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily want me to be there, but also I kind of understood on the same um, the other side. So uh, it was yeah. just kind of interesting. Yeah, no, it, it's tough because um, the frustration, the concern and, and, and those things may not be directed to you personally, uh, but you do identify with the white community and a lot of a lot of the frustration, anger, hurt, distrust is really geared towards the institution that is set up by, uh, you know, forefathers of this country who happen to be white. Um, but but at the same time, it's going to be tough in some cases for you not to take it personally, hearing it, you know, and maybe it was out of respect that they asked you to leave. In, in a way, because it's like, hey, you you really may be an advocate and an ally, um, but there's some things that I gotta say that it may be hard for you to decipher if it's personal or if it's corporate or whatever the case is, you know. So, uh, in, if there were a way for you to do it, try to take it as a maybe a sign of respect, actually. <laughs> yeah, and then it literally kind of opened up my perspective a little bit more, you know, just you know, when I walk into a room, usually there's, you know, I'm in a room full of people that look like me, you know, I know mm -hmm. Joy, you know, experiences a lot where she's in a lot of spaces where, you know, it's just white people and, you know, she's the only black person. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, me, you know, coming into that space and, you know, having that feeling where, you know, I feel different from everybody else, you know, I've never really, you know, felt that before. So I think it was, you know, a good way for me to kind of, you know, build that perspective. And it was, you know, actually kind of um, impactful. So yeah. in a way, yeah, it yeah. did help. Yeah, I would, Man. yeah, I would definitely say like, Gabe for a white guy has taken because we have lots of these conversations centered around race a lot a lot and Gabe mm -hmm. usually is the type who sits and observes and listens and asks the appropriate questions so that is something man hats off to you Gabe we 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 definitely need as many allies as possible man and uh you're only going to be uh, a more stellar individual um with that growth mindset man so yeah keep it up yeah. well yeah. thank you so much for joining us today and i can't wait to like work with you further and get to know you more um this is going to be so impactful for the victim well the survivors that we work with and we can't wait to hear more from you um i don't man. know yeah thank you for having me and it's awesome to be a part of our sister's house and i just want to say to those 
um, wonderful women who, uh, you know, who, who I may be seeing potentially for, for therapy. Um, you know, I really come with a teachable spirit. Uh, I recognize that in some ways I might, I might look like the person who has abused you in some ways, being a male myself um, and, and being a black male, uh, in some ways I may embody that, um, but I just want everybody to know that uh, I, I intend to create that safe space. And uh, as much as I learn and as much as I have been qualified to do the work that I do, um, I'm a student at all times. And so, uh, I, I just hope that I hope that this will be a great experience for I, I'm, I believe it will be, but for those who I get to serve. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up also because you know, you know I know we're, we're supposed to end but you know, women who are abused by you know black men they always you know see them as you know aggressive or you know violent. And that's just that perception that they have of all black men. Um, so mm -hmm. being able to have you just be, you know, a kind soul, someone who's gentle, willing to listen and ask those questions, I think can be really impactful um, for, you know, Black women that are coming to see you. So thank you. Cool. Uh, but yeah, thank you for all you do. I hope that um, we can definitely talk more and, you know, work together, you know, in the future. Um, so that'll be really cool. All right. Thank you so much. Let me end this. Okay. Thank you all for joining us on another episode of Confabulation, and we hope to see you on our next episode. All right.